1: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about um, the country of China. Uh, I think they're around, uh, plus or minus, 1.3 billion people, I believe. And um, to talk with us tonight, we have an internationally known expert on China, and that's Mr. George Magnus. George, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, where are you calling from this evening?
2: So I'm in London, England, which is where I live.
1: Well, very good. Uh, you know, beside being in London, uh, you publish regularly in the London Times, I've seen. And uh, tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in China.
2: Uh, right, well, I spent about... Um, or a little bit over 20 years, actually, as the uh, chief economist and then the um, uh, senior economic advisor to UBS, one of the big um, international European banks. And um, uh, during the sort of later years, particularly, I would say, from just before the financial crisis, actually, in 2007, um i kind of stepped away from my management role a bit um which allowed me to do uh, a couple of things which actually i'd spent a lot of time doing the first was actually trying to uh, get to grips with the financial crisis before it actually happened um and the second was to uh, develop what had already been quite a um kind of a strong interest in china um and um to basically make it something more than just an interest, but something almost a passion, I would say. Um, and uh, so, uh, I spent uh, much of the last, you know, ten years, I would say, um, you know, focusing a lot of my attention on trying to understand what was going on in China, and particularly once President Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, I thought something quite significant had happened in terms of you know the governance structure in china and if you superimpose that on all the other things that we kind of read about and know about in china it it it, it represented quite a an important tipping point i think we could quite accurately call it. So um, so this is kind of where my my, my interest in China actually came a long time ago, actually, when I used to travel there um, to go and pitch uh, the services of the institutions that I worked for to um, official Chinese institutions like the Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, and um, the people that looked after China's foreign exchange reserves and invested (laughs) them. Um, But, of course, you know, lots and lots of visits um, just sort of deepened my interest, not just in China's financial system, but also the economy, the people, the culture, the history, and so on.
1: Well, uh, the sort of the biggest issue I think we here in the United States from an economic standpoint are concerned is the Chinese economy, and how does the health of that economy affect our economy here in the States and in Europe?
2: Uh, well, in increasing ways, I think we are sort of learning, really. So up until quite recently, I think um, most people uh, kind of just regarded China as basically being uh, on steroids when it comes to, uh, you know, the consumption of commodities, industrial commodities, which China kind of hoovered up, really, to feed its uh, infrastructure and real estate sectors so copper and uh industrial metals and all the things that kind of go into to fueling uh construction activity and and the construction boom that uh that took place in china over the last um years but i think nowadays we we, it's a bit more kind of sophisticated than that it's it's still um you know china is still the world's biggest consumer of of industrial commodities but of course it's a big economy it's uh you know 12 trillion dollars um it has important uh financial markets which um are in in, in question be linked to uh global financial markets and um it's <clears throat> not always uh clear you know which is the chicken and which is the egg in terms of um making them kind of uh, affect one another um and of course it's a, a huge heart of kind of global demand um, and everybody's biggest export partner. So if China's booming, uh, everybody's doing well. If China's faltering, then uh, it's beginning to send kind of little ripples through the world system, as America has done for a long time. Um, and then, of course, on top of that, we've got this trade war going on, um, which is a sort of an additional aggravation, because um, as businesses become more um, uh, well uh, more anxious I would say about the outlook for trade and the outlook for investment which is very closely linked to trade um, it's, uh, it's injecting a note of caution into people's behavior and to their decisions some companies are starting to move bits of their uh, operations in China uh, outside of the country to other places like um, Korea South Korea, Japan, Taiwan um, um, so yeah it's, it's, um, it's becoming more and more significant as mm-hmm. to what goes on there
1: you know with, with uh, using the term trade war the the question is for this time in this place right now with tariffs and the apparent trade war is, is it legitimate for the United States to be pressing China the way it is doing it with uh, tariffs and so on or is it something that we shouldn't be doing in this country
2: well, my personal view about this, uh, Nick, is I think I, I think tariffs are not necessarily the most efficient or, um, or or useful way of trying to bring about important changes in policy, which the White House, I think, is trying to do. But I think that that should be separate, really, from the principle about is the White House doing the right thing? In trying to get China to change its ways, and I think the answer to that is yes, um, <clears throat> because I think that we have to recognise that the China that we knew, you know, thirty years ago, even fifteen years ago, was a different, a uh, different creature from the one that w- we see it today. So once upon a time, you know, China was a very uh, vibrant and um, expansive uh, kind of customer to Western companies into the western economies then it became a very feisty competitor and that was good because competition kind of makes everybody smarter makes everybody sit on their uh, you know on their uh, front of their feet as it were and, and try and be be better at what they're doing but I think, I think we all understand nowadays that actually China is not just a customer and it's not just a feisty competitor, but in many ways it's now an adversary, right? So it's a big place. It's $12 trillion. It's not a small economy anymore. <clears throat> it's still growing. Uh, whatever we think about the official numbers, it's still expanding. Um and um it wants to be number one in Asia and it may have pretensions to um you know, obviously it does have pretensions to expand its its soft power and its influence in other countries through the um the policy that's become, you know, Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy, which is the so called Belt and Road Initiative. And um uh As we know from all of the stuff that's in our newspapers now with regards to Chinese tech companies like Huawei, technology is the new... Uh, kind of uh, fault line, really, between China and the United States, or the West, actually, because it's not just the United States, which has got its hackles up, really, over China's tech policies and its intellectual protection, uh, intellectual property policies, and uh, so on. Um, It's also the UK and Canada and Australia. Germany, Japan, South Korea. So lots of countries are now involved in this. And um, so I think the the principle is we have to recognize that, you know, that there is a tension between China and the West. And we do have to try to not only be better at what we do, um, but we have to try to, uh, you know, we have to try to engage with China, but at the same time try to... um, Bring about kind of change if we can. I mean, I, it may fail. I mean, we may not may not be able to. Um, but I think it would it behoves us to try to do that at least.
1: You know, you mentioned intellectual property. Uh, the, the the story seems to go that uh, the Chinese will basically just uh, convert over to their own use technology without the benefit of paying for any license fees, royalties, or anything like that. Um, is is that one of the central points of of the problems. We have about a minute before we need to take a break, but I was wondering if you can quickly comment on the intellectual property problem and how Chinese uh, industry looks at that uh, as as open, uh, I guess, open for their taking.
2: Yeah. So um, the the issues of the techno- transfer of technology between companies, and the issue of intellectual property, and um, the issue of how China treats local companies relative to foreign companies, all of these things are very, very much to the fore in the negotiations going on, and um, and we want to see changes in those policies because we think that they discriminate against Western companies and um, and that you know, the culture is very different, um, you know, um, in the Confucian society, the issue of property rights, and particularly intellectual property rights, is, um, is, uh, is different from it is in, in, in our world. So we have to try to kind of bridge that chasm, if we can. Um, um, and I'm not sure that it's possible. That, that's what, uh, obviously, White House officials are trying to talk to the Chinese about as, as we speak.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we're, we're talking to Mr. George Magnus, who is an expert on the Chinese economy, and we're talking about uh, the relationship between the United States, China, and the rest of the world, and what's happening with the Chinese economy. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Mr. Magnus after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here. on the advocate on WHK. Don't go away. We'll be right back. I
4: get children: the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. This is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips and Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips and Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440 243 2800.
3: Gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555 or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555 or selectinsservice.com.
1: Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance insurance for your insurance needs
5: how's your back Every day, thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life. Dr. Patrick McCluskey and his staff at the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains. Located in North Royalton at Sprague and York Roads, schedule an appointment today with the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment. That's 440-884-0083. Just imagine being neck and back pain free.
6: at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care.
4: You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips & Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips & Millie at 440-243-2800.
1: Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Tonight we're talking about China and uh, in our short time trying to understand uh, everything there is to know about China and especially the economy. With us tonight uh, from London is uh, Mr. George Magnus. Uh, Mr. Magnus, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. you no, know, uh, we were talking during the break about uh, the the Future of China and What is Going on with the Changes in Their Government. You have written a book on the subject, which uh, is the result of a tremendous amount of research and experience. Uh, tell us about the book and what's the premise? Where, where are we heading with the future of China?
2: Right, well, happy to do that. Uh, so, thank you. Um, so, the book is called Red Flags, uh, and the subtitle is Why Sees China is in Jeopardy. And um, basically, it's um, it, it's really a book about uh, contemporary China and some of the very important economic challenges which it faces. Um, not all of them are unique to China at all. Uh, so these um, challenges I call the four traps, which are the debt trap, um, uh, the renminbi trap, which is a trap concerning its currency, the renminbi, um, the aging trap, because China's the fastest aging uh, country on the planet at the moment. And um, the middle income trap, which is a, a, an issue that a lot of emerging countries uh, succumb to. Um, they can grow out of poverty and, and become what we call middle income countries, but very, very few of them over the last 70 years have actually ever succeeded in becoming rich. Um, so Japan, South Korea, Singapore, for example, are three, uh, but there are only about 13 or 14 countries that have actually succeeded in doing that. And then, of course, on top of the four traps, we've got, you know, trade, which everybody, uh, I think lives and breathes all, almost on a daily basis. And also, um, the, the, uh, the Belt and Road, which is, uh, again, um, China's involvement in Asia, Africa, Latin America, parts of Europe, and so on. So, um, what I, I'm interested in these issues for China because one, they're all coming together uh, to challenge China at the same time. Some more urgent than others, but actually they're, they're all very, very live as far as Chinese policymakers are concerned. And the second reason that it's interesting is because of the, the change in government that took place in China in 2012. So um, I think at the time, not many people realized the significance of what was going on, because and why should they? Uh, because uh, the Communist Party in China is, to many people, like a little bit of a closed book. Um, And we have, you know, sinologists who are trying to interpret what's going on in China, much as we used to have criminologists that used to try to understand what was going in the old Soviet Union. But I think nowadays we all kind of understand a little bit more that actually China's political and governance system is different from what it was um, after Mao Zedong died and uh, new leaders came to power, um, convinced that the party, whilst it was always going to be important and dominate China's um, the Chinese economy and the Chinese society, that the party could stand back a little bit and let technocrats and pragmatists uh, run the place, you know, within kind of. Limits, um, but under Xi Jinping, that's kind of changed a bit, and, and the um, the politics of the party have again become very, very important and um, and pushed to one side or even out of the picture altogether some of the, the pragmatism that um, featured in, in decades gone by. Is, so uh, I'm interested to know uh, how ahead. all of that kind of mixes. What happens when you have a lot of big challenges, but you have a political mm-hmm. or a governance system which actually speaks to a much more repressive and stifling uh, environment?
1: The, uh, how far away has China come from the traditional notions of a, a communist society? And communist economy, those kinds of things are, are those changing? Are they being redefined?
2: Well, I, in strict in strict linguistic terms, the word communist, uh, as described to the Chinese economy, is a bit of an anachronism. To be honest, it is is definitely a state run system, and you know, state enterprises and state banks and um, state corporations, you know. Do have a very special role to play uh, and do get special privileges in uh, in China, but it's not really the kind of it's not a sort of politically communist with a small c uh, as let's say you know um, the Republic of North Korea is or um, you know the old Soviet Union was um, it's it's socialist but with a small s um, uh, and 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 not really communist in the way that you know Marx and Lenin would have would have recognised. Right. But having said that, <clears throat> it is very much a state system, and the party is uh, the, you know the one-party state, and the the dominance of that party in every walk of economic, social, commercial, financial life is uh, is total.
6: With
1: regard to trade negotiations going on now, what? What are the goals of the U.S., and can we discern what the goals of China are, and, and pretty much what direction the overall negotiations are moving?
2: Well, I mean, I th- I think China definitely wants an agreement with the United States. the The economy is, by Chinese standards, not doing that well. I mean, the official numbers suggest that growth has slowed to around six or six and a quarter percent i would be surprised if it was more than about five i think it's possibly even a little bit less than that um and there is anecdotal evidence about job losses and about um which is a very very more sensitive issue for china than gdp uh, itself um, so there, there's lots of evidence to suggest that, uh, that the Chinese economy has hit a little bit of a kind of a roadblock. Um, and I think the Chinese do not want a tariff war with the United States, because I think it would aggravate uh, an already mm, unfavorable situation. Uh, so I think they would like to, to strike a deal, and I think they will offer um, what I call purchases and pledges. So they'll they'll offer to buy more american soybeans, more american natural gas, uh, they'll probably lower the tariffs on certain products which would be sensitive to some american sectors, industrial sectors. And I think they'll pledge to uh, give market access perhaps in the financial industry, perhaps into one or two other protected sectors which they've well, they've made these pledges before. What the American side is really concerned about is compliance because, with some justification, they will say, you know, we've heard these pledges and promises before and nothing's ever really happened. So, how are we, if you, if you promise or pledge to do certain things now in 2019, how are we going to make sure that you live up to those uh, promises? And I think that's obviously a politically very sensitive thing to do because the American position is you know we need we need to have it demonstrated that compliance will be good and the chinese would say "Mm, but we're not going to let you kind of be judge and jury you'll just have to take our word for it so somehow they if possible they need to try to bridge that gap and come up with some kind of an arrangement I think the United States would like, I think Donald Trump would like to have a deal simply so that he can say, you know, we've got a deal. And I think it's obviously would be good for the U.S. equity market, the stock market, and for industrial confidence. But I think we have to be careful, you know, uh, not to have the wool drawn over our eyes, so to speak. just that it's not any deal is a good deal. I mean, there may be a deal. I mean, we don't know that for sure. But if there is a deal, we need to know really underneath it all whether the the original root causes are going to be addressed, which are the things we spoke about earlier, about in intellectual property, technology policy, subsidies for companies, and so on. These are the really, that, that's the bread and butter of what's going on and about um, technological competition.
1: Do you see anything switching a little bit over to military Uh, Do do you see any role that uh, military tensions or any uh, relationships with Taiwan or how that might come into uh, affecting what's going on with the economic relationship between the U.S. and China? That's a big question. Um, We have about a minute. Well, I think
2: it's... Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely a kind of a watch this space because um, uh, Xi Jinping himself has made... Um, a few references in the last year or eighteen months to Taiwan, which are, which sound—I um, mean—they're not bellicose in the kind of the strictest sense of the word, but they—they're kind of threatening a little bit. Um, and I think the Chinese would obviously like you know Taiwan to kind of change from the inside, so to speak, because I think he wants—he'd like uh, you know his legacy certainly to be the reunification of um, what they call the renegade province with uh, you know with the mainland. But the Taiwanese don't seem to have much appetite for this, and I think, um, uh, although I I, I don't think there's a sort of an immediate um, sort of military danger to the Taiwanese, I think um, you you would be surprised if the Pentagon Mm. and the you know Taiwanese military authorities weren't on you know a reasonable kind of state of alertness, looking for um, uh, any possibility that, that that things may. Uh, turn rather awkwardly um in that direction um, I see. but i mean i i, I don 't really know i mean i think I think that the the risk I would think is that if um if something untoward happened to the chinese economy and um you know china needed a distraction overseas or an international distraction in order to take people's you know attention away from what was going on at home then they could certainly ramp up the um, the level of tension with taiwan um I to see. a point where even though there's a sort of a dialogue infrastructure between the united states and, and china about uh, issues in the south china sea and so on um, you, you never can tell, really, how these things might kind of get out of hand if there were to be some, you know, misunderstanding or miscalculation. I don't think anybody wants to come to blows about it, but I'm just not, you know, in, in this in the state of the world being what it is, I'm not totally confident that um, that, that level of trust, which we would normally hope might be there, is I as see. good as it
1: Well, on it that, be. I think we're going to have to uh, conclude. The name of the book is Red Flags Why... Aziz China is in Jeopardy by George Magnus. And uh, Mr. Magnus, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Nick.
1: Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate.
0: WHK, Cleveland.
3: Coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi,
1: this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Elect insurance for your insurance needs.
5: How's your bet? Every day, thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life. Dr. Patrick McCluskey and his staff at the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains. Located in North Royalton at Sprague and York Roads, schedule an appointment today with the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment. That's 440-884-0083. Just imagine being neck and
4: back pain free. You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips & Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips & Millie at 440-243-2800 children, the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. This is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips & Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips & Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440-243-2800
6: at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care.
1: Welcome back to Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In uh, the next two segments, we're going to be talking about uh, current history, uh, current and also history. Uh, we're going to be talking to the author of the book Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. And that's Julian Salazar. Uh, Julian, thank you for joining us tonight.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. Uh, where are you calling
7: from? I'm in New York City right now. Well
1: oh, very, very good—the uh, the, the center of it all. But uh, the book, Fault Lines. Uh, you're a historian. Uh, you're with Princeton University, I believe. And uh, yes, I am. T- tell us about your interest in current history, which '74 uh, to present is.
7: Well, I've been a historian for uh, many years now, and a lot of my writing in previous books uh, tends to look at the period from the 1950s through the 1980s, although I've written on more recent history, including Presidents uh, Carter, Bush, and uh, Obama. So I've always been really fascinated with trying to understand events that are usually not treated by historians as history, or events which historians are only starting to really look at in their own discipline, and often giving a first take uh, on how these fit into broader developments and trends that we study, at least in the earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, And this book came out of a class that I co-taught with uh, my fellow author, Kevin Cruz, at Princeton University, uh, where we try to do just that, take students through the part of the uh, American history that's usually left out of the classes, and it's often left out of the history books.
1: Well, indeed, uh, just from my own experience, it seems like what we consider current history is usually crammed into, say, the last uh, week of a course, because... uh, all the older history has dominated all the discussions in class. Um, I know, and thank you for sending me a copy of the book, uh, Fault Lines, because uh, I was so interested in it, because this is the first history book I ever picked up and uh, looked at as an actual witness to everything that you're reporting. Uh, going back to uh, 1974, I remember I was giving away my age, I was in uh, law school. Uh, during the Watergate hearings and uh, you marked the Watergate hearings as sort of one of the uh, benchmarks for for the change in what was going on in the country that prior to this, I think, was dominated by post World War II type mentalities and a, a sense of what we were calling it in the 60s, the establishment of uh, why? Why Watergate? Why is that so important?
7: But well, we start the story uh, both with the Watergate scandal and also the actual resignation of the president uh, in the middle of his second term. And, and, and that's a real traumatic event for the country. Watergate was the culmination of tensions that had been building for over a decade, over the war on Vietnam, over divisions, over sen- uh, domestic issues, including race relations. But then this scandal takes place with a president who is very um, successful, who wins reelection in a landslide victory that many compare to 1936 when FDR won his first reelection bid. Uh, and, and the scandal opens up a whole world of Washington that many Americans suspected might be there, uh, but had not seen in the same way in terms of the misuse of political power, in terms of how far politicians were willing to go to attack their opponents and and to win re-election. And a lot of it is conducted in public. Congress holds two sets of hearings, including the famous Irving uh, Irving, uh, Committee hearings, where you saw administration officials dragged in front of the committee and often admitted a lot of what had been happening behind the scenes. So we thought that uh, his resignation was a perfect place to launch us into the new period when the country almost uh, tried to take a breath uh, after uh, everything that had happened, hoping uh, that it might be a point where there was more unity than division and some kind of resolution uh, to the anger that had built up. Uh, And that's why we start, uh, even though obviously it's not simply Watergate that starts to tear apart the fabric of the country that had existed since World War II
1: it uh, it's interesting because i remember watching watergate and it seemed to be a continuing story uh i i was at kent state uh, on may 4th in 1970 finishing mm-hmm. up uh, my my four years there and i know that mm-hmm. going through the 60s the you used the word the establishment almost as a swear word people weren't really happy with what the uh, the, the earlier the pre-60s establishment was about and then with the the watergate thing that just seemed to set us in motion. I, I know in your book you you talk basically on uh, a couple of things: the divisions that have been developing in this country since then, and and you mentioned uh, the development of not only the divisions politically, economically, racially, and sexual sexual divisions, been happening. Uh, and, and you trace that all the way through, through each presidency. It's almost like looking at the reign of a king, uh, looking at under whose reign did these various things happen. Um, you also talk about uh, changes in uh, culture and technology. Yes, yeah, so I'm not going to ask you in, in five minutes to explain all of that. but <laughs> it, it certainly laid out pretty well as far as what happened. As, as we were moving along after Watergate, what was happening next? Why, why were we being divided?
7: Well, we argue that some of the institutions that had helped keep the country uh, somewhat together over divisions that always exist started to erode. So uh, a strong federal government, a manufacturing-based economy, which had been really essential uh, to the growth of middle-class jobs in the 50s or 60s, jobs that were located in places such as Detroit uh, and the automobile uh, sector, a lot of the economy starts to change. And so uh, one thing we really highlight is how that transformation to the service sector, to a high-tech economy, starts to erode the strength of the middle class. And the middle class had been really an important part of, of, of what helped uh, to to hold us together. The politics really changed. Uh, we, we start to move to a system by the 80s where the parties are much more divided than they had been and there were fewer centrists in either party that could find points of commonality. And the political process itself would come to favor division, the way gerrymandering worked, the way that the congressional arms of each party worked. All the incentives started to be remade in ways that favored strong partisanship. And finally, we talk a lot about technology and the media and the way that they evolve in the era that follows network television and a handful of big city papers, where the media, uh, in part because of technology, becomes much more fragmented, much more contentious, and, and much more unfiltered in terms of how we get our news and how we conduct our public conversations. So there's all these big changes overlaying stories like Watergate or Reagan's election that, in retrospect, helped produce the world in which we live today.
1: Well, I I notice, as you mentioned, technology. uh, Often we think about the late 60s, and like 1969 in particular, where uh, we would have Walter Cronkite talking about uh, what's going on with uh, race relations and protests going on around the country. We talk about landing men on the moon. We talk about the Vietnam War. And these things were all done in a a 22-minute news half hour and uh, that, that has changed to uh, 24 with, seven with hundreds of news sources. And uh, I think later on in the book you point out that we end up with having the allegations of news sources that are presenting fake news and basically things that aren't reliable. Uh, how, how basically, uh, briefly, we're gonna be taking a break here in a short moment here, but uh, we'll be talking about how do we deal with these things and, and how is this trend continuing? because uh, it's a never-ending, never-ending thing. And in, in going over the chapters of the book and going over the, the events, it's amazing how many significant events have occurred between 1974 and 2018 that, uh, that we have these. The, uh, we'll, we'll talk also when we get back about uh, what, what's your uh, prognostication for where do we go here from, from now, where we are with the government shutdown and that, that kind of thing. But uh, we're we're pleased to have tonight Julian uh, Zelizer. He's a professor at Princeton University talking about his book, uh, Fault Lines. It's a history of the United States since 1974. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away.
6: at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care.
3: Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can not provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinservice.com 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com.
1: Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of the Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs.
7: On the battlefield, there's a saying America's military men and women live by. Never leave a fallen
2: warrior behind, ever. Off the battlefield, Wounded Warrior Project operates with the same goal. Wounded Warrior Project was created to help our men and women returning home with the scars of war, whether those scars are physical or mental. Wounded Warrior Project. We never leave a fallen warrior behind. Ever.
5: Learn more about what we do at woundedwarriorproject.org. How's your back? Every day, thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life. Dr. Patrick McCluskey and his staff at the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains. Located in North Royalton at Sprague and York Roads, schedule an appointment today with the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment. That's 440-884-0083. Just imagine being neck and back pain free.
1: Welcome back to the Remake Fellowship with the final segment of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight we're talking to uh, Julian Zelizer. He is the author of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. And as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, the first history book. I I remember everything in it, uh, to some degree anyway. Uh, Julian, thank you again for joining us.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, great great book, great story, a, a great way to, for those of us who are old enough to remember 1974 and what was going on, um, a great way to review our lives as to uh, how it all went and all that went down. It's a, it's a great uh, anthology of problems. Uh, and since 74, you've been mentioning that we've just been drawing further apart to get to the point now where we are highly separated and uh, very divided uh, how how do you view that as far as is this part, are we halfway through division here or are we at the the apex of division and we might be getting back together, well, how do you see this trend as a historian
7: I don't think we're at the apex of it, uh, part of the story we're trying to tell is, is really how we remake many of our institutions post Watergate post the trauma of the 1960s and we remake them in ways that tend to favor division. So whether you're talking about political processes where the benefit uh, is to the politician who plays to the extreme elements of their party, or whether you're talking about a media ecosystem that is structured around giving everyone access to the public commons, uh, and where editorial control has really diminished since the age of someone like Walter Cronkite, uh, it's not going to be easy to get out of where we are. We're going to keep remaking and operating in this world. You could just look at the impact that the development of social media had in the early 2000s uh, on the dissemination of information. We already had cable television by that point. We already had the Internet, but it really kind of explodes in the early 2000s uh, where this becomes a central means of information production, whether you're talking about Facebook uh, which came on uh, in 2004 Twitter or other, other kinds of mechanisms like this everyone could be a journalist everyone could have an opinion and it could go viral as we say all over the world so uh, when thinking about where we go from here, if we're serious about trying to envision a world where there are more points of commonality than only difference. I think we need to really think through how to reform different parts of our country, different institutions, so that there'll be more incentives to, uh, you know, find areas where we agree rather than disagree. And that could be as uh, specific as changing the way that gerrymandering is done in the states to commission nonpartisan-based work. Up to what happens in the boardroom of news networks um, and online news sites as they think about what kind of news and information they want to offer the public. It will take that serious kind of soul-searching, I think, to get out of where we've been for four-plus decades.
1: Yes, well, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking uh, with the political parties, the uh, extremes of the political parties, They all seem to be focusing on their base, whatever their base is. But the base, no matter how you're going to define it, is still going to be a very small percentage of the total population. Yet it it seems like the the massive uh, inertia of both parties seem to be moving to preserve their bases. Uh, Are we ever going to be able to get away from that, do you think? Or is it going to continue to be bases are going to be the, the hallmark and will be the uh, the goal to protect those bases throughout uh, the next couple of years?
7: I think in the short term that's not going to change uh, but it is possible to change that. I certainly think in the politics of campaigns for the House of Representatives, it is possible for states to draw districts that will be more competitive where the districts won't be solidly red or blue and and when a member thinks about what kind of issues should I talk about or what kinds of positions I should take? They will be more inclined to find the areas of gray if their electorate is more, uh, heterogeneous that way. Uh, but, but that really has to change from the, you know, bottom up in terms of the electorate. And, uh, you could also imagine, uh, with the political parties if campaign finance worked differently. I mean, one of the phenomenons we write about is, is how campaign finance changes, and you have the growing prevalence of, of private money in elections, and, and some of the major forces who fill that space are single-issue groups who give a lot of money, and they make sure that politicians don't diverge from the interest group's party line. If you reform that, if you switch to a system, for example, with more small donations, uh, you could imagine some of that breaking apart. Uh, so it's not inevitable, we'll always be that way. You could also see the sorting of voters, uh, which we had in the 70s and 80s, so it's, uh, voters aren't sorting so much along partisan ideology. But again, it's nothing that's going to change in the next two or three years. We're really talking about uh, really probably a decade-long project of reform to get the parties into a different place.
1: You know, with uh, t- going back to technology for a bit... Uh where do we go to get the true facts, uh, not not the filtered or the editorialized facts, uh, when when we have to go out and look at the twenty four seven media outlets, uh, both on the internet and and on cable? Is there a place?
7: I don't think there is a place, and and that is hard. And I think real really, there's a lot of obligation now on the part of the reader or viewer. Uh, not simply to sort out and, and to find where can I find the news that is, is most grounded in actual data and good reporting as opposed to partisan opinion, um, but it, it also will require people to look around a lot, and that's asking a lot, meaning uh, to do searching. Not, there isn't just one source. I think you really need to look at a variety of different kinds of sources within particular networks or sites. You have to find who can I trust. Everyone is not equal uh, uh, on these news outlets. But right now we're at a moment where, again, going back to the 60s, I think it was pretty easy for many Americans to know where do I turn to find out basically what's happening. I might have a different opinion than my friend or neighbor, but I can at least turn on CBS Evening News or read some of the papers like the New York Times. and No, that, that's the basic story, whereas I don't think anyone has that confidence right now in a lot of the news outlets. Uh, and so it takes, I don't have a good answer other than it just takes a lot of work uh, on on the part, and that's probably going to lead some people just to tune out, uh, which is a tragic development, I think, in a democratic system.
1: Well, that, that that's very true. Uh, but then on the other hand I see more people than ever being engaged in uh, the political debates no matter what side they're on uh, or if they're in the great middle uh, acting as spectators and commentators uh, among their groups uh, I haven't seen that before and especially uh, during the Trump administration which is extraordinary in many, many ways the uh, the thought of uh, you know what what do people expect to happen and like looking at your book you go up from 2000 or from uh, 1974 through 2018 Uh, we're all like waiting for the next chapters to be written and it's almost like with every news cycle we have some other breaking news story that uh, adds to the story and uh, how's the story going to end Uh, any any predictions on that
7: I don't know how the story ends, to be honest, and and the great thing about being a historian is, is we're trained at looking at what happened, not what's going to happen. Um, I, I do think, let me pick up on something you said, which is, I believe, true, that in all the uh, tumultuous uh, news we're going through now and events, which I think worry many people, rationally so, we're... we're we're talking as the government is shut down and, and we don't know when it's going to reopen or large parts of it, um, it has led to incredible interest and engagement in politics. I have never, as a professor, been at a point where so many people want to know about uh, how does voting work or how do our political processes let this happen? How does the What kind of power does the president actually have and why can he invoke powers that he doesn't seem to have? These kinds of questions are uh, front and center for many people. And uh, I think it's been pretty remarkable. There's the interest in our book, is we're fortunate that it stems from that. People want to know Why exactly sure. what you're saying. We didn't have this happen. No, no, I, I think the, the answer is, yeah.
1: Yeah, we only have a couple seconds left, but I, I think the book not only is great for a college class, but also for book clubs, because there is such a general interest but uh, the name of the book is called Fault Lines: uh, A History of the United States Since 1974 that we can all relate to at least half of it. And uh, we've been we've been speaking with Julian uh, Zelizer. So Julian, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
7: Thanks having you.
1: me. Thank you so very much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea
0: With nothing to do until morning and only my mind